Hey, it's Kristen. I'm super into the conversation I get to have today because it's all nerdy and sciencey while also being full of heart. Well, thanks for having me. I, I really connect with your whole purpose because a lot of people feel like the quest for love is a central quest of their lives. Many people are questioning whether to even go on this quest, what it means for them if they do, what it means for them if they don't, whether it's all just a crapshoot, whether they can do something to put the odds on their side. And all of that is exactly what I'm about. This is Dr. Duena Welch. She's known best for her work applying social science to real-life romance. She's the author of this book, Love Factually, and then just this past February, she released its companion, Love Factually, for single parents and those who date them. Obviously, my interest was piqued. If you're interested, you can find out more about Dr. Welch at lovefactually.co. But for now, what you need to know is that she relies on data-backed conclusions and uses evolution psychology to better explain what drives us in love and mating. And dating. Dating. That was a Freudian slip. So I did, obviously, I read your book. I read um, Love Factually and was super interested that you were actually approaching love with science, which, I, you know, feels much more legitimate to me somehow. <laughs> she's gotten wind of what we're up to here, and I am thrilled to say she's agreed to jump in and help me sort through my questions about this newly recognized drive to find a mate. I'm most curious to find out what she has to say about why I desire partnership, despite the fact that I have no clear vision of what romantic partnership might look like for me. And I wonder whether she'll be able to find any concrete data in my strangely piecemeal mating history. We start our conversation, though, with a confession on my part. Actually, there was a line right near the beginning when I read it. It it really, it made me a little bit emotional and I was surprised. And um, here, let me just read it. It's instead of shaming others for wanting love, we should support them in their search. I realized that that made such an impact on me because in getting ready to even do this project, that felt like confessing this huge secret that felt like, I don't know, I, there, there's some deep feeling of shame or failure that's associated there. And when I read that line in your book, I got the sense that I'm not I'm not alone in that. And I'm just wondering if you have any, do you know why we have this bizarre association of kind of this shame of declaring, I want love, I want a partner? Well, we're constantly told that we shouldn't need anybody else. That's a part of American culture. And in fact, if you look at self-concept, and self-concept, by the way, is scientifically defined as all the answers that any of us could give to the question, who am I? So that can be hundreds and hundreds of answers. And all of that sums up your self-concept. The self-concepts almost everywhere else in the world are more focused on group memberships and our position in the family and how we are similar to other people we care about. And the self is defined in relation to others, most places in the world. America's the country with the least group-oriented interdependent self-concept, and Americans are the most likely to have what's called a very independent self-concept. The idea that we need other people or that it could be healthy to need other people is kind of contrary to what we're told from really even behaviorally from early life. I think the reason you're getting a, an impression that you feel shame about this is because there really is a lot of shame about this in our culture. And I just want to back you up that there is no reason to be ashamed of this. In fact, we know that the happiest people in our society are people who view it as part of their, a very important part of their life journey to actively take care of their romantic partner. 
part of the reason that I think that there is also this fear around even making this declaration is the fact that if I do believe that I can be happy in a partnership, still by declaring it, I'm opening myself up to the possibility that I'm not going to find it. There's like this very public failure that all of a sudden is associated with it. And I know that you talk about love as this common, highly renewable source. To me, that seems so completely counter to, to the way that I feel. And I think, I guess a lot of people feel about it. Yeah, it's it's really sad because, again, the cultural message is that love is so rare that if we ever find it, we have to grab on with both hands and probably both legs. I guess the big picture here is that, yeah, making that public declaration, it does seem scary. If you really, if you really search in the right way, if you really quote unquote right way, if you use science as your guide, it's really unlikely that you're not ever going to find a good partner. I am a, I'm a pretty darn satisfied, happy person as a single person. I like my life and I love being with my kid and Obviously, the the drive to mate is not that is not part of what's pointing me towards having a partner. So I do have these moments of why do I really even think that I need a partner? You know, and and especially because sex has never been forward in my life. It's not been something that I've been driven by or felt like I was missing or anything. I just I guess I'm wondering, you know, you being someone who has studied this in a scientific way in a like Neanderthal brain sort of way, Tell me why there's this feeling that I might need a partner or want a partner or want that kind of, you know, complete family unit when there's really nothing wrong with my life. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up that our mating psychology comes from a prehistoric time. It turns out that culture turns turns on a dime, but the genetic aspects of our psychology, the thoughts that we are prepared to think, that does not come from 2019 or from 1919 or 1819. It comes from a time when we weren't yet numbering years. We know this from research that's been done all over the world that shows that we have a common mating psychology that can be predicted based on what the challenges are that our ancestors would have faced. The survival and reproduction of individuals in a species, it eventually becomes species-wide. This is why, for example, species-wide, all men prefer young, beautiful partners. Gay men, straight men, men, they prefer young, beautiful partners. Because look, in the ancient past, it may have been true that some men didn't care how old or wrinkly their partner was if they actually preferred partners who were much, much older and infertile or already pregnant or whatever, they wouldn't have left any surviving offspring. Men today are the inheritors of what worked. And by worked, I mean they survived and they survived long enough to reproduce and to raise their offspring. So when you ask me, well, where does it come from? This, this urge I feel to have a partner, even if I've not had a lot of sexual experience or even a lot of sexual interest, where does that come from? Well, unlike giraffes, our babies don't plop out and start running across the savanna the moment they're born. Our babies take a year or more just to walk. And to be able to survive ancestral threats, they take years and years. So the parental investment is really high from both mothers and fathers for our young. And so what we find is that people, unlike organisms that have young that can survive right away, people and other creatures where the young can't survive right away, they need a lot of parental investment. 
they have an urge to find a mate. Here's a fun example. There's a Japanese zoo that has a pair of mated male flamingos. And these male flamingos steal an egg from another couple every year. In fact, the zoo started just giving them an egg because flamingos, like most birds, have very dependent young that need the investment of two parents. So these birds are experiencing an urge to do things that even though they're gay, or I'm going to think they're gay because they're only attracted to each other and they're both males, they still want the things that would have led to their ancestors surviving and procreating. What we know from science with human beings is, gay or straight, you probably have the same mating psychology as other people in your gender. And we know that these flamingos, they're young, just like human young, need the investment of both parents in order to launch. And so these flamingos aren't just carrying around bright pink feathers and a way that they stand on one leg and the way that they talk to each other. They are carrying around a psychology that says, find a mate, raise young. Human beings likewise have a strong call to find a partner, even if consciously they don't ever want children. I have a lot of friends who, by choice, they're child-free and yet they want to mate and they have very happy lifetime partnerships, marriages, and they see these things as independent. But at the bottom of it, probably the reason they want a life partnership has to do with this largely unconscious program that is all about surviving and reproducing. Is it strictly that biology that's driving me, even though I haven't been associating it with a sexual drive? Or is there something more that we're getting out of marriage that also is feeding our species desire to continue to find partners? Today, people really benefit from pair bonding. It's true that the urge to do this largely seems to have arisen from ancestral problems. That's where our psychology comes from. But even right now today, there are huge benefits to forming a lifelong, happy, healthy pair bond. For example, not forming that bond has about the same risk of death from all known causes as if you were a pack-a-day smoker. Whoa. Yeah, it's really significant. Having Someone who's in your corner, on your side, your insurance in case you lost your job. You know, I needed open heart surgery three years after my husband and I married. Just having him on my team, knowing that he'll listen to all my problems, knowing he'll celebrate all my successes, knowing that he's got my back. Those things take a lot of stress off me and stress is not good for your biology. That's good to hear because I think that there's also always that part of me that's so afraid I have to be taking care of myself. Therefore, whenever I've thought of having a partner in the past, it's been this feeling of actually a drain. It's been a feeling of like, oh, and now there's going to be another person who I'm responsible for and da, da 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 Whereas it's only been within the last few months that I've allowed myself the thought of, oh, wait, why do I assume that I would be taking on another dependent as opposed to being with someone who's actually able to help provide for my family and provide for my life. Yeah, that's and it's such an important mental shift that you've made. So even though our unconscious mating psychology comes from an ancient past, our conscious mating psychology comes from what has happened to us personally. And what has happened to you personally could have been, and I don't know your history, but could have been that 
Maybe your parents didn't choose a, a partner that really worked for them. Maybe you have witnessed abuse at some point in your past. Maybe you've just seen a whole lot of the news and media that show really prominent marriages breaking up, not being happy. Maybe those examples just stand out more. You know, good relationships, they just don't get very much press. I can tell you for sure from science that bad is stronger than good. And by that, I mean that negative examples have a lot more psychological impact than positive examples for everybody. That's true for everybody. And probably there's a survival reason for that. You know, if somebody's kid fell into a fire in the ancient past and a hundred other kids didn't fall in the fire, I promise you all the parents in that tribe paid attention to the one kid that died and they tried to keep their kids from getting anywhere near that fire after that. You know, we pay a lot of attention, all of us, to the evidence around us that relationships don't work. What we don't see is that the vast majority of married people are happily married and that ever since 2000, it's looking like the divorce rate. I'm going to let you guess at the divorce rate. What do you think the current divorce rate is right now? The lifetime expectancy in divorce and or separation rather than in till death to us part. I mean, the number that I always hear thrown around is 50%. And it's so funny. It's never been that high. We've never had that high rate of marital failure for first marriages. We have had that high a fail rate for subsequent marriages, but not for first ones. Okay. So what is the number for first? The number for first right now is two thirds of these marriages are lasting a lifetime. One third are ending in divorce. So even if it was just about odds, odds are on your side. And I would like to point out, it's not just about odds, because once you understand that science is about putting the odds on your side, science tells us what works for most people most of the time. That's what it's there for. It's no longer 50-50 or even two-thirds, one-third or anything like that for you. For you, it's much closer to, yeah, this is just going to work. So up to this point, we've been talking about mating behaviors in general. But the suggestions from asexual.org that sexual and romantic attraction can live in separate realms has had me thinking. If sexual desire has never provided a clear compass of what kind of mate I'm attracted to, could I rely on romantic attraction to direct me towards my forever partner? Because I can look at the line of people who have been my primary emotional partners throughout my life, even some of the people that I've had what I would call in retrospect true crushes on in the most classical image of a tween girl mooning over the dreamy celebrity she's tacked to her wall, and the commonalities are undeniable not least of which is the fact that they're all women. I, it's funny because it's almost like I, I have faith and believe that once I'm actually in a, a relationship with, with someone where marriage is the inevitable next thing, or it's the thing that we both want, I actually have a decent amount of faith that we can have a happy marriage. But it's like the steps between this moment where I sit here speaking with you with zero prospect to that point is like this bizarre, amorphous, well, how does that happen kind of thing. And we began talking a bit about the fact that there's the male species, female species, kind of basic needs and wants and responses to things based on just our history as human beings. So I've had this experience of realizing that there was this very deep part of me that wanted provision that wanted someone who was going to show up and actually add to my, you know, my family and offer some sort of actually tangible 
providing of something to to my life, which to some extent coming from the Midwest, where it was this idea of homemakers and men who go out and work felt kind of horrifying for a few minutes after that thought crossed my mind. And then I, you know, moved towards it and eased into it and started playing with it. And I was like, when I have this kind of fantasy future person who's showing up, wanting to provide, excited to provide, I suddenly feel free to give of all of my resources. And then when I started reading in your book about this, that this actually is a thing that in women, there is this very core kind of desire to be provided for. I was like, oh, okay, so that I'm just a normal woman, which was kind of a revelation in and of itself. It did make me wonder when you're dealing with a situation now where there's two women who are looking to partner, how do the desire, the, the same, same desires of people of the same genders, how, how does that interact? Yeah, that's a great summary, by the way. Thank you for that. So I'm going to say something that everybody already knows to start with, which is women are a lot more complex than men are psychologically. I don't mean men are simple and stupid. I mean, men are just a lot easier to explain scientifically. For example, you can literally tell whether a man is gay, straight or bi just by hooking something called a plethysmograph up to his penis and having him watch porn that is gay, straight or bi and see what he gets hard to. You can't tell anything from doing this with women. If you if you fit women with a vaginal sensor that detects sexual lubrication, women lubricate to everything. We lubricate to watching same-sex couples, opposite-sex couples, chimpanzees do it, insects do it, masturbation. We lube to all of it. Men everywhere value youth and beauty. Women everywhere value provision and protection. Women absolutely everywhere at all known times in history and in scientific studies, and it doesn't matter whether you look at hunter-gatherer tribes or whether you look at the United States today, or if you look at various subcultures, or if you look at countries all over the world, does not matter how you look at this. Women strongly value not just a partner who can provide and protect, but a partner who wants to in an ongoing way. I call it willingness and ability to provide and protect. You can't overstate how much women want this, but there's more than one kind of woman. So when you've got two women, it still kind of depends on the women. Because like I started this with, women are more complicated. To the extent that scientists have interviewed and examined the lives of women who are butch and femme, what they've found is really interesting. Femme lesbians tend to have more of a mating psychology that is very similar to straight girls. So for example, if you ask a femme lesbian, how many lifetime partners would you ideally like to have? The number's really low. If you ask a femme lesbian or a straight woman what their ideal is for a relationship, they're looking for lifelong monogamy usually. They are less interested usually in pornography. On the other hand, women who identify as butch have a more masculine type waist to hip ratio. That is, there's not as much of a dip. They also express preferences in their mating psychology that seem quite like guys. For example, they give a much higher number of ideal lifetime partners. They're slightly less likely and sometimes much less likely than straight girls or femme lesbians to say that they want a lifelong monogamous relationship. They'd like their partner to feel that way, but they themselves at least emotionally, are somewhat open to thinking about infidelity or open relationships. And they're more likely to be turned on 
by the idea of or the activity of watching porn that's more appealing to them. So what I'm saying is there's not a, a totally direct answer to your question yet. We need a lot more or we need a lot less heteronormative science and a lot more inclusive science. I will say that there has been a 30-year longitudinal study that looked at same-sex couples and opposite sex couples and happy relationships and unhappy relationships. And the lead scientist on that project, Dr. John Gottman, was interviewed about the results and the differences between same sex and opposite sex couples. And here's almost a direct quote. He said, maybe heterosexual couples will be as happy and as fair in about 200 years as same sex couples are. He had a much more favorable impression based on his many, many years of science following the same couples over time if they were same sex. And the reason for that seemed to be twofold. First of all, same sex relationships were much more egalitarian. When you're free of sex roles that people have taught you to have, you're free to make the relationship the way you want. There's no assumption that she will do the dishes. Both of you will be doing the dishes. Or you will mutually decide who's better at that task and who likes it more, but it won't be based on gender roles, which are largely unfair. The second thing is that same-sex couples, whether it's two men or two women, are far more likely than straight couples to talk really plainly about sex in a way that is helpful to them to figure out what is mutually satisfying and what's mutually okay. Actually, I recently heard someone speaking about that and was totally fascinated because it had never crossed my mind that there wasn't just a default the way there is with straight couples where there doesn't ever have to be a conversation. And as soon as that kind of dawned on me, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, like there has to be so much more communication. The specific line that I had heard was that every gay couple has the initial, so what are you into? And that's just how everything starts. And it should be, by the way, I'm, I know you, I'm shooting you, but yeah, straight couples who talk about sex in a really direct manner are happier with their sex life. I mean, this is something you're right, that same sex couples usually need to do and straight couples kind of tell themselves they don't, but they need to do it too. Uh, there was yet other research done in a different lab. This one was done in um, Masters and Johnson's laboratory where they actually filmed people having sex, same sex, opposite sex couples, men, women. And they interviewed them about their satisfaction in their sex life, but they also got couples who were open to being observed. And uh, I am going to just say it. I'm not that open. I don't want anybody observing. But these were folks who were all okay with it. And yet, even among these um, really, I would think, very open-minded people, who the people who were having the most satisfying sex and the most full-body sex, where it wasn't just focused on the clitoris or the penis, these couples were the same-sex couples. The whole body was a playground for them. You speak about the fact that women are, by nature, more discerning when it comes to choosing a, a sexual partner, just by virtue of the fact that, hey, we can get pregnant. And that was way bigger a commitment back then. And I mean, still is, but there was there was not the same kind of options that there are now of trying to prevent that. So if you're dealing with two women, is it just a given then that there's going to be less of a sex drive in that scenario? And then kind of part B of my question is, and I, of course, am personally interested with this idea of this extreme discernment. Is it possible that I am just so hyper discerning that I have not met the person that I'm willing, willing to like engage with? Yeah. So um, there are terms in the lesbian community that are
are almost non-existent in the straight community and the gay community, the gay male community. In lesbian relationships, the danger is not really so much that the sex that's had will be bad. We've already covered that. The sex is probably going to be pretty amazing. But there's a chance that the sex will stop altogether after a while. In, and of course, the common denominator in straight relationships and gay male relationships is that there's at least one man in the picture. And men tend to kind of just go through life being somewhat horny. And so whether you've got one man in the relationship or two men in the relationship, at least someone in the relationship, is just kind of more biologically wired to just want sex for the sake of sex, independent of emotional content. If you've got two women and neither one of you feels quite that way, there's the danger that if you only do sex when you feel like having sex, that you just will fall into a rut of never having sex. And uh, of course, Straight couples sometimes confront this, but not nearly as often. So um, there are various ways around that. But I think it's really important to be aware that ha in a relationship, most people will feel closer to their partner if they're having sex on a reliable basis. Orgasms are really good for us. And it's really good for our bond with the other person because then we associate this other person with one of the best feelings in life. And if we associate this other person with one of the best feelings in life on a routine basis, not every few months, but maybe, you know, like once or twice a week, if we associate this person with a routine extremely positive feelings, it helps us to mitigate the negative feelings that come up in relationships. So um, it, uh, this is interesting to me because I think I have always associated the, what am I asking? I feel like other people are clear about their sexuality. They're clear. I like girls. I like boys. I like what, you know, like whatever it is. And I do emotionally connect and have actually been in deep love with women but because there hasn't been a specific explicit sexual draw as the first thing that comes up I've I've wavered I've been I've felt confused around it because I thought I've always thought that 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 is necessary to be able to claim a sexuality a sexual identity that oh yes I want to sleep with this gender therefore this gives me my answer. I guess what I'm sort of hearing, which feels validating to me, if this is indeed what you're saying, is because women are complex, because there is this emotional component, and and quite frankly, because sex isn't driving a female to female relationship in the same way that other relationships might be being driven, there there is validity to to loving and having fallen in love and feeling that I can claim that, that I can claim that I actually do have some sense of a, a romantic compass or whatever you want to call it, even though, you know, some blonde isn't walking in the room and I'm like, hey, I really want to, <laughs> I really want to take her to bed. Is that what I'm hearing? You are. Yeah, that's exactly what you're hearing. You know, there's research on young love, people who fall in love when they are children or in middle school or in high school and never have sex with the person. They're so young that that's not part of what they're doing yet, or they're in high school and, you know, chances are about 50-50, I think, right now that you leave high school still a virgin. There are also married people who fall deeply in love with someone they're not married to, but they don't take it to the physical level because they feel that that would be a betrayal of their primary partnership. There's a lot of love that happens that where sex doesn't happen. So just because you have loved without having physical intimacy does not mean anything 
invalid about the love you've felt. And that tells you, you know, you can claim, you can say, yes, I love women. The people I have loved romantically have been women. Whether or not it became physical, that's a separate thing. A lot of women do not wake up in the morning wanting sex. Some do, but a lot don't. And for many women, many of my clients, they feel really confused about it because they feel like, you know, why can't I just be viscerally attracted to someone right at first? Well, in many ways, that is a protection. Again, the psychology is from the ancient past more than today, but that's where our psychology comes from. So you can't, there are a lot of women who it's only after they begin getting physically intimate with someone they love that they begin feeling like they really want that connection. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's been my experience has been that the even, even the concept of a sexual intimacy hasn't been able to arise until I'm so deeply in an emotional relationship with someone that it almost surprises me when it appears. Well, Kristen, you do you, honey. (laughs) I mean, seriously, there's, there's no need to, if you have felt any shame about that, that I want to, you know, take my magic wand, say, poof, that's gone. You, You don't need that anymore. It's, it's how you are. It's just fine. Having a solid, happy partnership where you both have each other's back and you're both on the other person's team and you're living with not only someone you want to touch and be touched by, but someone who touches your heart. That is a wonderful thing. And if you've never had it, borrow my faith. I've been under the impression that I'm entering the dating world without the armor of past experience because I've never been anyone's girlfriend. I've never been in a recognized partnership. I've never gotten beyond that first few perfunctory dates with the boys in my 20s. But Dr. Welch is confirming that all of the relationship data I've collected outside of the pursuit of sexual relationship is valid. And more importantly, it's useful. What if we can't understand ahead of time why we fall in love with the people we fall in love with? What if being certain about our types and what we like and dislike, what we think we know about the person we're going to pair up with, doesn't actually affect which people we end up connecting with in the end? No matter how hard we try, we may never be able to predict with a pure analytical mind our behaviors in love, much to my chagrin. You know, the reasons we're attracted to some people more strongly than others— why we notice a certain person when we walk into the room and then completely ignore the person standing next to them. But we can look at the patterns of our past. We can begin to see behaviors and truisms about what the unconscious parts of us are drawn to, have been drawn to. And we can look at the history of our species as a whole to help us predict and understand our own behaviors, because we're all human. We aren't such unique flowers in our romantic pursuits. I know, fellow millennials, sorry, but we're not really all that special. So after this conversation, it looks like we are being led towards a whole slew of questions around what it means to be a woman who falls in love with a woman. Outside of being one of those, I have no real knowledge of what it would look like to now enter the world of dating women with the intention of romance, of finding my lifelong partner. Oh my gosh, I even have a hard time with that romance word. I need to get oriented in that new possibility, in that new probability. 
Oh my gosh. I like, yeah, I'm still, fu- I don't, I don't know what's happening. Okay. So anyway, just join me next week. Join me next week as I sit down with my two favorite new mom friends who just also happen to have been together for 15 years, and I feel totally ridiculous asking them. Okay, so it's really clear that I'm not straight enough to be straight, but what do I do if I'm not gay enough to be gay? Don't tell the other episodes, but I think it's my favorite conversation of the season. That's next time on Curious Love. So much thanks to Dr. Duena Welch for making time to speak with us this week. As I mentioned, if you're interested in learning more about what she's up to, you can find it at lovefactually.co. And I'm happy to have you here with me, listener. If you're wondering about the details of the past relationships that have gotten us to this moment, there is this kind of prequel to the series available that in my new book, The Overthinker's Guide to Love, a story of real-life experiments turned practical wisdom. It's available for pre-order now at theoverthinkersguide.com. I'll see you back here next week for the next installment of Curious Love. <laughs>